Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's interview, as so many recently, was made possible as part of the Theo Psych Project, hosted by Fuller Seminary's Office of Science, Theology, and Religion, and in fact, Jim and I's conversation was recorded down at Fuller in Pasadena during one of those conferences. Now, at the end of my main interview with Jim, I actually have him come back on the show later. He Skyped in to help me answer a listener slash patron question about how to think about the pre-scientific nature of the Bible. Now, initially, Jim and I set out to talk about 10 common myths or misconceptions about the theory of evolution. I ended up adding one of my own, so we did a total of 11. And many of these misconceptions, unfortunately, have caught on because they are talking points in the literature that comes from some young Earth creationists and some intelligent design people. Now, after we got through all 11 myths, 
we still had some time, and so I got to ask him some questions about a topic that I've always wanted to cover on this show, but that doesn't really necessitate its own episode. What is going on with the claims in Genesis that people are regularly living 900 years? I love talking about that, so we got to get to that issue as well. Now, Jim Stump is a philosopher by trade. Currently, he's the vice president of BioLogos Institute, an organization you've probably heard me mention on this show. He's also the host of the official BioLogos podcast, Language of God. I think they do really great work, primarily focused on the evangelical community in the United States. Let's get into it. I want to start with just a little bit of your own personal history, specifically around evolution and Christianity. So how did you start, you know, sort of come to this topic? I uh, grew up in a very conservative Christian family who took their faith very seriously, but I was not in the kind of environment where I was forced to be suspicious of science. My dad was trained as a middle school science teacher, and creativity with the natural world was something we were always encouraged to pursue, and there was never the kind of feeling like the answers to questions needed to be foreclosed to say, this is how you must do that. So I didn't have that kind of baggage that a lot of people who grew up in similar circumstances did. And as a uh, bright male, I was encouraged into math and science. I grew up in very small rural towns and didn't really understand a whole lot of the rest of the disciplines that are studied in universities these days. But I liked math and worked with numbers and did science. So I uh, went into that and uh, started off as a math and science uh, education major in college, but was always drawn toward philosophical aspects as well. So getting into the work that I did, I grew up in a Christian family and always took my faith seriously, and I was interested in math and science. And so there was always a question for me of how do these two things fit together? And as a philosopher then, that became the area of, of study that I pursued pretty seriously. So over lunch, which we had before this interview, you mentioned that you didn't grow up with much antipathy around the, the question of, for instance, science and, and faith. Was there ever antipathy about evolution? Did it ever seem like, ah, but this might be kind of a problem for my faith? So we're sitting here at the theopsych thing where we're hearing how all kinds of our memories are uh, not reliable always. And so <laughs> I will preface my uh, responses to that. Appropriate. With the acknowledgement that this could be a reconstruction now, uh, later. But as I look back on my life and think about science and faith and evolution in particular, I don't remember times of going, evolution is so obviously false, it's just stupid, how in the world could you know humans have come? I don't remember those, but there is a significant time of my life where I intentionally didn't dig deeper and engage in the understanding of the scientific theory of evolution for, for fear of what that would mean for my faith, okay? And I mean that in the sense of I didn't understand how I could consistently hold to both of them while at the same time having this sort of lower-level feeling like they're both true somehow. But I'm not going to probe that too deeply because I'm nervous about that. Yeah. As a philosopher then, when I, I got further and further into this and found some examples of people who did take their faith seriously and who did accept the findings of modern science, 
I felt some permission then to say, okay, this must not be as difficult as I thought it was. I didn't have the role models growing up in my education of people who who consciously and intentionally held to both Christian faith and modern and modern science. I had some role models that were suspicious of of modern science, and I heard them and I was influenced by them, but never uh went all the way in thinking that therefore modern science must be false. So it was later on, even after my graduate school years, that I found more examples of people who were uh, more positively building the case for how you can hold these two things together. So we're going to talk about the theory of evolution today. We're talking about myths, common myths. A lot of these are sort of coming from evangelical literature on evolution, but some of them are also from sort of just popular writings and popular misconceptions about evolution. But let's start with a definition. What actually consists of the theory of evolution in this context? Yeah, that's a great question. And you can, uh, I think, answer that at multiple multiple levels. So at BioLogos, when we talk about evolution, we're almost entirely talking about theory of common ancestry. So if you go back in all of our family histories far enough, and with the family history of anything else on the planet that's alive, if you go back in those family histories, you'll find common ancestors. That doesn't at all say, and here's how all that happened, right? right? So I want to distinguish between several different kinds of things that get called evolution. One of those is just the fact that things change over time. If we dig down in the ground, go and find fossils of things that used to live and roam the planet, they're different now than they used to be then. Right? About 99% of all the species that have ever lived on the planet are now extinct. So there's an evolution in the sense of there's different kinds of stuff around now than there used to be. Okay? We might push a little further and say there's evolution in the sense that things adapt and change to their environments. So the wings on the peppered moths in the Industrial Revolution in England change over time. And uh, within the popular literature, that sometimes gets called microevolution, as opposed to macroevolution, which is the next step then of saying, if you do that for long enough, you're going to get different species. And there's a big demarcation problem in there of when does something turn into a different species. But one one limit that people say is interbreeding, right? And which that is not, doesn't it's, work it's not in perfect. all the cases. It works but, most of the time. But right? it's, yeah. uh, it's a helpful, it's, it's something helpful to point at. And so that macroevolution then is over a long enough stretch of time, you'll get, because of all of those little changes, you'll get different kinds of species evolving. The step beyond that, though, is to say, and here's how it all happened. And there's sort of an orthodoxy, sometimes called neo-Darwinism back in the 20th century, that all of that happens through the process of random mutations and natural selection. So now that's identifying a specific mechanism by which evolution happens. I'm not talking about the mechanism at all. And one of the one of the myths, one of the misconceptions we'll get into is when uh, evolutionary theory is in crisis or that the experts don't agree, that's what they're not agreeing about. Mechanism. The mechanisms yes. that are responsible for this. And how many other things besides random mutations of the genetic code feed into 
the mechanism by which things change and speciate over time. This is why people refer to Richard Dawkins in his biology work as a neo-Darwinist, because the selfish gene, the thesis of his book in the 70s, is basically genes want to replicate themselves, and that is the mechanism. That was his claim, and now that's actually debated, and it has been nuanced yep. quite, quite a bit since then, 40 years ago or whatever, right? For sure. So there's a lot of scholarly debate among the secular biology community of which of those mechanisms are responsible and to what degree. What they don't dispute, or at least 99% of them don't dispute, is the common ancestry part. Right. So when I talk about evolution, when Biologos says, we think evolution is this reputable scientific theory, we're talking about common ancestry there and say... Yes, let's continue to have the debates about specific mechanisms and how far you can push those, but common ancestry is not really in dispute among the biology community. Okay, so let's uh, let's dive in here. We've got 10 common myths about evolution. The first one, evolution claims that we evolved from monkeys. Why is that a myth? <laughs> so this is what uh, you see posted on Facebook by your aunt or somebody, right? We, I didn't is, evolve from no monkey. I didn't right. evolve from a monkey. So this, the first thing we do is we have to point back to this common ancestry thesis again. That is not that we came straight from monkeys, but if you take a monkey and go back in that monkey's family tree, and you take me and go back in my family tree, or any other human, or any other organism on the planet, eventually, and here we're talking millions and millions and millions of years, you get to a population from which monkeys and humans both descended. Yeah, it's like if you uh, follow the many forking paths far enough down, you get to a time where there are fewer paths, and one of those paths diverged to us and to monkeys. Right. So it's So it's we different. did not yeah. come, so you see the monkeys in the world today, we did not descend from them, Right. Right. They and we descended from some other species, which is long extinct. And was neither a monkey nor a human. Right, right, right. Because whatever makes them a monkey happened since then, because it didn't make, we didn't make us monkeys. So I want to dive a little bit into this. There is a psychological element to this, right? There's a part of it that's like monkeys are lower than man. And so I think people who have a strong sense of the Imago Dei, the image of God in humans... They, they go, well, if I'm related to a monkey, then that is knocking down the image of God. But you're saying precisely, no, uh, you go far enough back, even their rats and humans have a common ancestor, but we're not saying that we're related to rats. We're not saying that we're related to yeast. We're not saying that we're related to unicellular organisms, right? It's just common ancestry. And that does have a palliative effect on this worry about Imago Dei, doesn't it? It does. Um, quite often, the first thing I like to respond with, with to people that are worried about Imago Dei and are coming from some other lower life forms is to say, so coming from dirt is somehow better. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. So if if you take that, that uh, more traditional understanding of human beings being created separately from all the other life on the planet, you still have them coming from something of God doing something to another kind of material to turn them into human beings. And there's no reason theologically you couldn't say the same thing about our evolutionary history of God using other kind of material, but then still maybe doing something that turns us into human beings. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like the, the, the larger theological claim of Christian creation is that God takes matter 
And we tend to think of matter as sort of inert. It doesn't have value. It's stuff. And God makes something holy out of matter. Yep. And either either that's through common ancestry or that's through picking up some dust or a rib or whatever. But it's it's the same theological move. Right. Okay, number two, related. If we evolved from monkeys, which we know we didn't, but if we did, why are there all these monkeys still around? So this is what you see the celebrities tweet when they're okay. uh, arguing against evolution. There's more than one case of... There are like uh, anti-evolution celebrities? Oh my goodness. You you mean like, I'm sorry, like movie stars? Yes. Okay. Or sports figures. Okay. Or right. that this is the good tweetable, if we came from monkeys, how come there's still monkeys around? Yeah. So again, yeah. we didn't come from monkeys. We have common ancestors. And the way evolution works is that there are populations of related organisms that diverge, right? And sometimes there's some really interesting ways this happens. If a new river gets recharted through a place where there was an interbreeding population, and now there are two parts of that population that can't interbreed, so they develop separately. And if you do that for long enough, long enough, they're going to diverge far enough that even if you did bring them back together, they couldn't breed anymore. And so you've got these separate species going on. So the fact that we have common ancestors with monkeys does not at all mean that there can't be monkeys around still. Even if we did come from monkeys, there could still be monkeys around if there were a separate population that came off because of some historical accident that then developed differently. So the claim is not that all of one kind of population has to turn into another thing in order for evolution to work. That's just not what happens. Number three, and this is a turn, now we're kind of getting at some of the historical literature on the creationism side, right? We're getting into some talking points that, for instance, I was taught at one point or another in growing up with some evangelical education in Christian school. The second law of thermodynamics disproves evolution. Feel free to spend some time on this one because let's remind ourselves what the second law of thermodynamics is and how this is, argument is supposed to work. Second law of thermodynamics is that things tend to fall apart over time. Entropy. There is less usable energy available to a system, and that's going to be the key term in this, over time, not more usable energy within a certain system. So the obvious examples are if you uh, go and leave something alone for years and years and years and years, it tends to deteriorate over time rather than increasing in complexity. So the very intuitive thought is you're telling me that life over time increases in complexity when if I leave the the tool shed out in the back 40 on my property alone for lots and lots of years, it doesn't turn into, you know, a beach house over time with all of the latest appliances. It tends to fall apart over time. So it feels like this intuitive thing to say left to its own, how in the world would you get increasing complexity in the organisms, which according to the fossil record that we have, it sure looks like over time we've got animals and plants with increasing complexity. So what's the problem with this? Well, the problem is the second law of thermodynamics applies to a closed system so that all of the inputs and outputs are cordoned off, and within that system you get less and less usable energy over time through friction and through heat loss and these things that you can't recuperate. So if you want the shed to turn into a summer house, you have to open up that system and put energy in, hammering new nails in, you know, whatever, bringing in some paint. Like 
you you you're basically unclosing the system when you put your body back into work on the shit. Right. You're you're adding energy to that to system. system. Yeah. That then allows it. You are actively in, engaged in turning it into something else. Yeah. So the question is, is the evolution of life on the planet Earth a closed system in and of itself? And the answer to that is a resounding no. The sun. there is massive energy being right. poured into this system throughout billions and billions of years. Now, if you were to take the Earth and the sun and draw a hermetically sealed box around that, now we do have a closed system. Right. And over time, that is going to degrade. And we've got, what, four billion years left in the energy of the sun. But once that's gone and that energy isn't being pumped into the Earth, you're not going to keep getting evolution. If there's no more uh, energy, everything's going to die off and everything is going to dissipate away. So the argument against evolution based on the law of thermodynamics discounts the fact that there's energy being put into the system. Uh, Myth or misconception number four, no new information can be added to DNA through natural processes. I admit I'm not familiar with this even argument. I've never heard this one before. So the argument itself comes from saying... All of the DNA mutations are corruptions of information. They're okay. degradations of information as opposed to them being able to positively do something. Here again, we have a kind of intuitive sense of what this objection is about, that it's very difficult for us to see how random processes could turn into something meaningful over time if left to themselves. Do so you think this plays on the same in- intuitive move that the thermodynamics argument It's a does. similar intuitive okay. move that it sure feels like you'd have to have something else going on in order to get, say, the human DNA that produces these remarkable bodies that we have, right? That when you compare that to the DNA of an amoeba, that we say, how in the world do you get all of this extra information that's required to give us the skeletal systems and the neurology that we have and all of the things that those lower life forms don't have just by random mutations. It seems like all that random mutations would do would be to degrade the system and make it worse rather than make it better. Now, there's a couple of things going on here that get pretty tricky. And first and foremost there is what do we mean when we use this word information? Yeah. Okay? And we have this, again, an intuitive sense of what we mean by information, and we think of our DNA as a kind of blueprint of some sort that has all the technical specifications, say, for building a skyscraper, and think that, come on, if you just randomly put together a bunch of papers with words on them, it's not going to turn into the technical specifications for building a skyscraper that we need. The difficulty there is that that's not exactly what DNA is. It's not a blueprint in that symbolic sense that it creates a picture of something else that it's supposed to be. And we get tricked a little bit even by the popular discussion of DNA as being composed of all of these A's and T's and G's and C's which are symbols, and it kind of sounds like it's this symbolic thing that could be reduced into binary computer code, say, to turn into something else. But that's not what DNA is. DNA are these little biophysical molecules that have certain shapes that do things. They don't mean things. And this is a, this is a tricky distinction. Yeah, this is tricky. Yeah. We have an article on the Biologus website about information in this regard that we might point listeners to. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to that. 
But the difference there is that computer codes mean things. Languages, alphabets, those those smallest units mean something because we have attached some meaning to it and we live in this culture where everybody shares that meaning and we know we know what it means whereas dna is not a code in the sense that it means something it's only a code in the sense that it does something so with a string of these biophysical molecules if you have the right ones together they do something rather than meaning something. And now if what we mean by information is just we can rearrange that in ways that it does something else, then it's really easy to show how the process of evolution creates new information to do new things. When you say does something, I mean, an example is like this series of DNA code tells this enzyme to eat this protein in this way? Or is it like that kind of a thing? So even or? when you use the words tells and yeah, eats, sure. um, yes, we're already right. importing a sort of anthropomorphism yeah, into, okay. into it as opposed to, yeah, here are three nucleotides. So those A's or G's or T's yeah. or C's. You put three of them in a row, it builds an amino acid. And then yeah. a string of those amino acids turns into a protein. And those proteins are the things that do things in our cells, like take oxygen and turn it into energy and, and all of these things. So when I have a string of those DNA nucleotides, which are these biophysical molecules... When I have a string of those, it does something. And if I had a different string, it would do something else. So a really easy example in this regard is people with sickle cell anemia. We have identified the exact point mutation in the DNA that flipped that causes some of those red blood cells to be in the shape of little sickles instead of round orbs for carrying oxygen. And it turns out that that can get really painful when those cells bunch up in certain places within your arteries. Now, what it also does, though, is if I just have one of those recessive genes of sickle cell anemia, I'm more resistant to malaria. So now I have a string of biophysical molecules in my DNA that does something different than it used to do and there are both positive and negative effects of that and this is basically how natural selection works you have some change and it either increases your fitness for survival or decreases it and that could be at the individual level but where it really happens is at the group level and yep. people get that heritable gene and then the group with it or the group without it will either do better or more poorly and then that's how and then over long enough periods of time so I'm just I, I want to spend a little bit more time with this DNA thing because I I am recognizing how little I understand about it. Francis Collins, who is one of the founders of BioLogos, I haven't read his book yet, Language of God. It's on my shelf. My understanding is that his sort of elevator pitch is that DNA is the language God uses to create things in the world, or something like that. So he was the head of the Human Genome Project, right. yeah. And when it was announced that that had been completed, that it created this map of the human DNA, of which there are three billion of those nucleotide base pairs. Um, at the announcement of when that was completed, he was standing in the press room with then President Bill Clinton. And when Bill Clinton introduced that, he's the one that used the phrase "the language of God." Now, I don't know if that had been supplied to him by some of Collins' yeah. people, but he was the one that said, we have been deciphering the language of God, by which he meant, here's the characters in which life has come about. And we as Christians believe that God has something to do with this, right? So here's the way by which life has diversified on our planet. And it's this elegant, fantastic way. So 
calling it the language of God means no uh, disrespect to God right. in any way. It right. means this is unbelievable in how this all works. But I think that even as I interpret that phrase, I think of it like God spoke and there was light. God spoke and there were the fish and the birds on that day. Like, I think of it through this metaphoric lens that you were catching me in earlier of it is a blueprint. It's a set of directions. My first image when you were talking about information was like the very first PC we had with little, you know, little command bar to type things in and press enter. Like, I'm adding some information to the program. I don't know how to get out. I need, I need to like read a book about DNA to get out of visualizing that way. What, like, what's a trick for a better way to visualize it for those of us that have that problem? Yeah, learning the, learning the science of how it works goes a long way because the popularization of scientific theories is loaded with those metaphors, and we yeah. bring lots of baggage with our metaphors to, to understand those specific things. So just reducing the DNA down to, to what I said earlier, that you have a string of three nucleotides, that any three of those codes for one amino acid, and there are 20 different amino acids, so there's some redundancy built into all of this. So you go from one of those 3 billion base pairs to taking three of them together that makes an amino acid. A set of amino acids makes a protein. Proteins are what does all the work for life in terms of, am I going to build muscle, or am I going to build some bone, or am I going to make a brain, or, you know, how all of this stuff works is, is phenomenal. But to see that as it all starts with these little molecules that do things, rather than it being a computer code that we see on our screen with ones and zeros, substituting for the A's and the C's and the T's. So... Uh, it's a physical system. It's yeah. not an electronic system. Okay, that's good. That helps a little bit. Okay, number five, evolution is a theory in crisis. We, you spoke about this a little bit earlier. The The disagreements are about the mechanism, not the overall story. Is there yeah, anything else so, you'd like to say? Right. So the frustrating part is that sometimes the people who are critics of evolution leverage the the sort of popular misconception here to say, look, I went to a conference and all of these completely secular evolutionary theorists were just arguing with themselves. They couldn't agree. Well, what they weren't agreeing on were particular parts of the mechanism. And there is a very big matter of discussion among evolutionary theorists theorists over what's called the extended synthesis, which is to go beyond the synthesis of neo-Darwinianism, which was a synthesis of natural selection promulgated by Darwin with genetics that Darwin didn't know anything about. Right. So this was a very powerful explanatory theory in the 20th century, early 20th century, that you've got genetics, it randomly mutates, creates these organisms that can do different things. Some of those are more beneficial for survival, so they have more offspring. And there's a thought that that told the whole story. Well, there's a lot more going on now that we see things like lateral transfer of DNA between organisms. Right, I've seen and that. we have these niche construction theorists that talk about how we actively do things to the environment that in return creates conditions where some of us are more successful than others. Beavers building dams, for example. And then lots of other uh, understanding of how DNA actually works with the regulatory process of genes that gets turned on and turned off rather than they're just being mutations somewhere. That all of these are completely current matters of discussion and debate 
debate among evolutionary theorists, none of whom are questioning whether common ancestry actually happened. So evolution in the sense of common ancestry is not a theory in crisis. And in the article here, I link to the data where among professional scientists with PhDs in biology or medicine, 99% of them accept the common ancestry of human beings with other life forms. There's still the 1%, and if you're uh, trying to uh, capture the public's attention, you'll want to point to some of those occasionally to say, see here, I found these other people that that don't agree with you. But 99% about as strong as you get in the scientific world of agreement. And so I'd even say consensus on the fact that uh, common ancestry is correct. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, we will get into transitional fossils, missing link organisms. So I just paid my first tuition bill for grad school, and I must say, I am more grateful than ever for the patrons of this show. Speaking of which, do you guys remember Bonnie Christian? She's been on the show twice, once talking about atonement theories and another time talking through inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration. Her excellent book, A Flexible Faith, goes through all kinds of topics like that, giving the basic positions held across the Christian spectrum. And recently she was gracious enough to do another one of these episodes specifically for patrons of the show. We talked through these two linked questions. What does God know and does God determine who will be saved? To hear the entire conversation, you'll need to become a patron if you aren't one already. It starts at five bucks a month and it also includes membership in the patron only Facebook group and exclusive episodes like this twice every month. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch or you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron. Here are some clips from my chat with Bonnie to wet your whistle. Um, and so the idea there is that, that God is in control of everything that happens. Um, and to say that means that he, he sovereignly determines it. Um, all, all of history is due to God's choice. Um, that choice is unchangeable. There is nothing you can do to, to buck against it. There's nothing you can do to thwart his will. Um, and so even things that we look at and say, you know, that's evil. I don't see how that could possibly be part of God's plan. I don't see how that could bring God's glo- God glory. In some way, God has ordained that for his good purpose. And we may never understand it in this lifetime. Um, you know, eventually you will understand Um but the, the mystery of it to us in this moment does not change the fact that even these apparently horrific evils are ordained by God and do bring him glory. Uh, you know, I have a, a close friend who grew up in a, a Calvinist context, and for him, um, he looked at sort of his life and his thoughts and behaviors, and he was like, well, I'm definitely damned. There's a lot of, an, it, it's easier to handle, I think, questions of salvation and of evil because the Arminian can say, no, God did not ordain that to happen. God did not create a world where that had to happen. You legitimately made that choice. You chose the, the, to do the evil thing. You chose to reject salvation. Um, and so uh, those questions, I think, to some extent become simpler. But this, I want to talk a little bit about this in out of time thing. I heard that a lot growing up. It, it seems like it's a go-to response for almost, for like most Christians, to say, well, God's outside of time, so that solves that. But mm-hmm. I don't know that like, I really understand what that means and how then God ever does anything in time. Open theism is not communicating 
necessarily something different about the nature of God or God's power or God's knowledge, but about the nature of um, the future and, and how time functions. Yeah. And so the idea is not that, again, just as with Arminianism, it's not that God is stupider or weaker than in these other theories, but that um, significant portions of the future legitimately do not yet exist to be known. And so God cannot know what those parts of the future are yet because they, they just don't exist. He can't know a non-entity. The future, uh, yeah, the future does not exist and therefore the future can't be known yet. Right. So if that sounds interesting, or if you just want to help me get through grad school, you can go to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Back to the episode. Okay, we are back with Jim. And during the break, I asked him if I could add an 11th misconception or myth, which is irreducible complexity, Michael Behe's argument about trying to poke a hole in, in the mechanism of evolution. But for now, we're still on the original 10, and we're at number six. And let me say, too, of the original 10, this wasn't intended to be some sort of exhaustive, comprehensive no, it's list, just, but it was it's rather just, yeah. things that I had compiled over time. And I <laughs> actually had a longer list of things. Not everything made the final cut for number 10. <laughs> so there, there are plenty more. Yeah. So number six is there are no transitional fossils. And, you know, you say, where's the missing link? This is the idea. And I, I read this in my creationist textbooks in Christian high school that, hey, here's a big problem. We, we have all this microevolution, but no one can point to these transitional species. Turns out that was not right. It turns out that was not right. And the fossil record is interesting in that it's a very, very rare thing for an individual organism to become fossilized after it dies right. instead of to just decay or get eaten up or washed away or any of that. So there's no getting around that the fossil record is going to be selective. I mean, if everything that ever lived became fossilized, there wouldn't be any room on the planet for the rest of yeah, us, we right? Yeah, we just all choke. So we have a very selective uh, group of fossils to begin with. And I heard the same kinds of things as you did. And for a while, it's, it was fairly reasonable to claim that at some level that we're missing transitional features of many of the, the big transitions in evolutionary history. Boy, the last 30 years has been like the golden age of finding these things, though, of finding transitional fossils. So that word itself, transitional fossil, is a little bit funny because I think in a technical sense, every one of us is a transitional fossil from right. something to something else, right? right? Yeah. But the concern there is that you just don't have the examples of the intermediates between, say, our last common ancestor with chimpanzees and what modern human beings look like. Where are those, is the question. Well, if you've been paying attention to the news for there's the last 30 them. years, there's a lot of them. Yeah. And if you go down to Washington, D.C., to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, they have the Hall of Human Origins now, that they have a big wall with a bunch of the fossils, and there's a little plaque there that says, we now, and this was several years ago, we now have fossils from more than 6,000 individuals that fit that time period between the last common ancestor of chimpanzees and us today. We have these fossils of things that are not chimpanzees, and they're not human beings, that's a lot of individual items. 6,000. Yeah. And the news from South Africa where they keep uncovering these right. caves where they find literally hundreds and hundreds more that haven't even been cataloged yet and yeah. brought up. So 
there are lots and lots of transitional fossils. One of the difficulties, though, is that there's an assumption kind of that you find something in the ground. Is that a direct ancestor of mine? And almost certainly the answer is no. And even of these other hominin fossils that are being pulled out of the ground now, are those direct ancestors of of human beings? Probably not. They're probably other offshoots, but they're intermediate in the sense that you can uh, plot out on a graph, say, the uh, average brain case size of these fossils, and you see an almost direct line of yeah. increasing brain size from Homo erectus a couple of million years ago to Homo sapiens today, and lots and lots of intermediate points in there. So there are lots of transitional fossils, and not just for humans. For I mean, we like to parade around the the whale, the land mammals to say, whales. How they get the nose on the top, and they say it couldn't have them. And there's tons of fossils there's, where it's there slowly are so moving. So many up. of them. Yeah, so many of them. But that's not to say there aren't other places where there are still gaps in the fossil record sure. because those kind of organisms didn't get fossilized for whatever reason. So pointing to the the uh, very obvious fact that there are gaps in the fossil record doesn't at all mean that there are no other sequences that are remarkably complete and tell this story of gradual transitions over time. Yeah. Okay, here's one I have not heard before. This is number seven. Evolution is merely historical science and therefore cannot be tested or confirmed. I, I admit I am a little bit befuddled by this. Yeah, so the, the... Fossils are physical things. You could certainly say, I expect we will find a fossil showing this, and then you find it. I mean, that's testable. So the way the argument typically goes, though, is to say you're trying to make an explanation for something that happened millions and millions of years ago. You can't go back in time millions and millions of years ago to see if your explanation is really correct. No, so oh, instead, this is like no one was there. No I've one heard was that there. before. No yeah. one was there. No one was so there. Yeah. this is history rather than the repeatable testable experiments that scientists do in their laboratory. Right. So this is a way that many people who are critics of evolution want to still be able to hold to modern technology, say, and to have, yeah, we believe that our iPhones are going to continue to work, and we know the technology there, but they say that's observational science that you can do in the lab and test to show how it works, as opposed to this story that you're telling me that happened millions and millions of years ago, where you're really only making guesses about what happened. Okay, that's pretty good rhetoric, but it doesn't follow very closely the way actual scientists work. So even in setting this up, you gave the example of I'm observing the fossil. So this can very well start by digging down through a trove of fossils and realizing that the deeper I go into these older layers, I find different kinds of things. That's an observation. Things that no longer exist, things that are simpler in form, etc. So the way the scientific method works, if you can generalize, is I make this observation and I come up with some sort of a hypothesis to say, why in the world would I have these different kinds of things lower down in the fossil record, older in time, than I do now. Evolution is the hypothesis, or what we would want to call now a theory, that says, here's why we see these things. But as soon as you make the hypothesis, then you have to test it. Right. This is the way science works. So if that's really the case, if my, uh, my claim of evolution is the correct explanation for why we see the things we do in the fossil record, I ought to be able to make some testable 
hypotheses to say, if that's really true, then I should see this in this other case. So then it might be in a different part of the world, in similar layers in the fossil record, I should find these kind of things. things, Then I go, and if I find them, does that prove my theory? No. But it supports it. But it supports it. And if you do that enough over and over and over again, you get these testable hypotheses that have been shown to be reliable that we call them theories then. And we say, yeah. this is a good explanation for why we observe the things that we do. Yeah. Or, you know, for instance, carbon dating and other forms of radiometric isotope half-life dating, you know, the big counterargument is, well, that only goes to 40,000 years. It's true, but it's not the only kind of dating that uses that because you can use other elements with longer half-lives and, exactly. and you can test that stuff. And for instance, there's a guy at University of Washington where I live who's Who's his job and his work is like because tree records and stuff like that for particular years changes with environment. They're actually even getting that curve tighter and tighter and greater levels of granularity to where they can even get much more precision, right? So, and then you can say, well, I would expect to get this result on this rock and you can test it and you can get it. I mean, it's just, it's kind of naive to think that there's not ways to do real science just because we're talking about past events. I mean, certainly they wouldn't want to say that about the gospel accounts. Right. I mean, I'm not there to see that either, but I have to take them on some kind of authority Uh, or, or should I go, you you know, the Lee Strobel case for Christ argument, which I think is a a good argument, at least for the synoptics. If they said exactly the same thing, you'd think they were lying. You'd think they were getting their story straight. Well, I wasn't there, but can I use that argument? I mean, I think it's a pretty good argument, but it's exactly the kind of argument we're using for evolution. We're, right. we're taking what we've got now and we're logically processing it and we're thinking, well, what kind of things would we look for? And yeah, this just seems like kind of a bad faith one. And I think most people who use those kind of arguments that object to some of the scientific conclusions have in their minds that they're based on a very small number of data points that are being extrapolated yeah. wildly when right. the reality of it is, is that there is so much data that points to this consistent answer and very, very, very few exceptions or problems that that those methods have generated that we scratch our heads. They want to seize on some of the problems and some of the difficulties. So some of these dating things, you know, there's the popular one of, well, if you use your dating on these rocks that just came out of Mount St. Helens, it gives you the wrong number. Well, it's because you're trying to use a timekeeper, a calendar in a sense, for something it wasn't designed for. And so in the same way, if I tried to time a 100-meter dash with a calendar, I'm going to get pretty bad results. Right. So I have to use tools that are appropriate to that. And there's a lot of cross-checking and corroboration of those things with lots of different ways of of testing. And so people need to hear that the dating methods we have are very, very reliable. So number eight, this one is maybe less of an argument and more of a, a polemical slogan. Evolution is man's word creationism is God's word. I mean, that to me, I hear that. I go, I'm on this team and you're on that team. <laughs> I don't know if there's much more content <laughs> to it than that, uh, than just to simply say that. Cause, because how soon was creationism even a thing as opposed to evolution? I mean, it's, it, we're talking relatively recent history that these camps have even formed opposing each other. Before Darwin, there wasn't even... No one, everybody sort of agreed on this. At stuff. least not the way the young earth creationism that is yeah. termed today. Yeah. That, that's been a fairly recent development. 
But what I'm poking at there is just to remember that these are both theories that human beings have put together to try to explain their experience, whether that's mm. experience of digging bones up in the ground or seeing the way DNA works, or their experience of reading scripture and of their life within a faith community. It's an explanation for all of that. It's not like creationism dropped down from on high, fully formed. So when you read Genesis 1 and you see the terms that are being used there, that is not young earth creationism. There are still interpretive steps that have to be taken. And this is just my attempt to try to get all of us to recognize that we as human beings are attempting to make sense of of what we find. And it's never so simple as saying, here's what the Bible says, end of story. So that leads into number nine, which is that the plain reading of Scripture clearly supports six-day creationism. Now, are you going to bring in John Walton to this? Because he seems like his kind of work would be a, a nice corrective to this thought. Right. So what John Walton has done is to show that Scripture itself is informed by the culture in which its human authors lived. He's, so, at, he's at Wheaton. He's an Old Testament professor. He Very he does, high view of Scripture. Yeah, does straight up, just looks at the biblical Hebrew. That's his whole gig. Right. Yeah. And so what it shows is that there's no getting around the fact that there are cultural influences in the way Scripture was written by humans. So even if we accept, which I completely do, that Scripture is inspired by God, that doesn't mean that the words themselves dropped out of heaven and landed on the Bible in front of us. That would be the way Mormon texts came about or the the Quran came about. But the way the Christian Scriptures came about was that God reveals himself— and that people write it down, and they write, write it, it down it in ancient Hebrew, and which was a language with certain rules, and you can learn that language. And as you might take from hearing him speak and, and knowing kind of his program, is that the more you get into ancient biblical Hebrew, well, then when you read it with those eyes of someone who understands that language, then all of a sudden, just some of the translations we have straight into English, we then think, oh, that must be six days. That just means like days, 24-hour periods. But he's like, no, 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 that's not, like, that's not how they would have heard that word. And so it would be silly for us to put that meaning on them when they wouldn't have thought of it that way. And I think it's helpful, too, for people to realize that we already do this for Scripture all over the place, where we read the plain meaning and say, that must mean something different. And obviously, we could go through Leviticus or Deuteronomy and find places where the plain meaning of Scripture is not something that we do today or follow, right? Having your uh, rebellious sons taken outside the city to be stoned by the elders is something that we say, no, 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 it doesn't mean that for us today. Or even go to the New Testament. And my favorite example to use there is that it's very clearly commanded by at least three different New Testament authors that you're to greet one another with a holy kiss. Mm. And we say, oh, no, 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 that was just for them. Well, the difficulty is there's no little asterisk in the text that says this one was just for them. This is just cultural, But yeah. here's the one, you know, love your neighbor. That's yeah. the one that applies to all. So yeah. we already bring this interpretive frame to the text to say, okay, what's this trying to tell us? So when we're looking at the texts on creation itself, we have to ask ourselves, when we read this plain meaning, and it says the days, does it mean exactly what I mean by day today, or is there something more going on? So the plain reading of Scripture is 
more problematic and more difficult than just picking up my English translation in 21st century English and finding a passage to point to to say, thus saith the Lord. Yeah, when people go plain reading, my favorite question to ask them is if uh, women in their church cover their heads. Right. Because Paul's very clear. He says, is it not clear from nature itself that a woman's glory is that her head's covered and a man is that his is uncovered? And there are a handful of churches, maybe 1% of American Protestants cover their heads still, you know, maybe some strict Mennonite sects and maybe some super fundamentalist Baptists or something. You'll find it, but most of us think that obviously doesn't apply to us. And so why do we think that? I mean, that's a, a whole rabbit trail, but like at least acknowledging that, oh, we are engaged in some interpretive moves here. We have some reason to think that that does not bind on all Christians all time, that we ought not take it directly like that. There's a, a real challenge that many people react with these kind of observations to, though, and that's, so in order for me to read my Bible, do I have to go get a PhD in Hebrew and sure, Greek and everything sure. else? And I want to be careful that people hear that, no, that's not the case. I mean, we have this view of Scripture that God really does speak to us through His Word, and that everybody, I will uh, stand up and pound the pulpit and say, everybody will benefit by taking up their Bible and reading it. But on the other side of that coin, I'm going to say, all of us will read it better if there are people within our trusted communities who have gotten their PhDs right. in the languages that right. help us understand what that context is so that we don't just take some passage of it that seems so crystal clear to me and end up forming a cult out of it, right? So there are experts and just like we rely on experts in every other area of our lives, the church does well to rely on experts, even though we recognize that experts sometimes make mistakes too. Yeah, totally. Number 10, myth, misconception number 10, Christian scholars accept the evolutionary creation position out of the desire for professional advancement. Ouch. Some people call this an ad hominem attack. Is that what it's called in the <laughs> logical fallacy literature? So I included this one, probably because it strikes pretty close to home, where <laughs> sometimes the people who are critics of evolution say, you're only accepting this so that you'll be accepted by your peers. It's a, it's a and, variation of the caving into culture argument for other sort of progressive positions and whatnot. Well, you're caving into culture, which ignores that there is more than one culture There is more than one culture, into. and... For most of the people I know that hold to this position of evolutionary creation, the cultures that they've been part of are not the kind of cultures that reward people who right. hold to these yeah. who hold to these positions. They lose their jobs. Often. So most yeah. of the Christian scholars I know that hold to evolutionary creationism are either teaching in secular universities where it becomes this big scarlet letter you have to wear if you're a creationist of any type that holds to uh, the biblical creator God. Or you work in a little Christian community where you are immediately put under suspicion if you use the E-word of evolution. So it's a combination that tends to uh, exile you from either of those so communities. Even if you're at a secular, you. even if you're at a secular university and you're an evolutionary creationist or an evolutionary theist or something, theistic evolutionist, you're already you're not. It's not. It's not as good as people think. <laughs> Basically, that's not that does not just get you in the door to be accepted by all your peers. Right. They still look on you with suspicion. So it's kind of a, a no man's land in terms of modern American higher education institutions. There aren't a lot that are actually well suited for people who hold this view, which then 
you know, thinking through this psychology stuff we're talking about this seminar. So that's a defeater. So these people must really believe it because it's actually not in their interests most of the time to hold this sort of middle position. That's right. Oh, man. So you said I was allowed to add an 11th one. Of course, there's more than that. I'm going to explain it and then we'll see what you have to say about it. So Michael Behe wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. Darwin's Black Box. That's the Edge of Evolution. Yeah. And then there's a more recent one even. Yeah, it seems like he's he's still kind of making the same argument. So the idea is it's an intelligent design argument, which is not the same as theistic evolution because intelligent design wants to claim that there are certain aspects of the scientific account that cannot be explained naturalistically, that God is required to supernaturally intervene in order to produce the kind of world that we see today. And this is one of the most popular of those arguments. And the argument is called irreducible complexity. So correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but the idea is he uses flagellum on a certain kind of bacteria and then the eye as two examples of, hey, if you have a partially working flagellum or a partially working eye, it's not working at all. And in fact, it's wasting energy. It's wasting some part of your legs or your face that's not increasing your fitness. And therefore, you would not pass that on. It's impossible for irreducibly complex systems to evolve slowly by increments because you have to have all the things working at once. And you can't get them through increments because they are it's, – it's astronomically unlikely that these three interlocking pieces would all come together, but you need all three. That's sort of the argument. And again, flagellum and the eye are the kind of two big examples that he uses. This is the most common critique I've heard coming from people who are a bit more conversant with the science and the literature from a, a non-theistic evolution standpoint. What do you have to say about this argument of his? So I'm not a scientist, and I've read some of the scientific responses to Behe and to irreducible complexity. And so, for instance, with bacterial flagellum, of it looks as though there may have been precursors to the system we have now that have been used for other things in the past, and so that you don't have to get every one of those parts magically poofing into existence at the exact same time. But these, so exaptation is the the process of using something else that was a originally for a different purpose and tweaking it to use for something new. So there's some suggestion as to whether that might be the case in some of these. The example of eyes is interesting because throughout the animal kingdom, we have lots of different kinds of eyes at various levels of complexity. And just showing those and pointing those out does not mean see, therefore, this is how our right. eyes evolved. But it's at least provocative for us to look at different levels of complexity of eyes and what they can accomplish on behalf half of the people that have them that would give them a selective advantage or yeah or the organism advantage. the people that have them the organisms that have them <laughs> the people are we gonna this not anthropomorphize, anthropomorphize too much but on the eyes thing i i've read that like there are a lot of fish and other sort of aquatic animals with very primitive eyes but like they can at least say oh up is clo is where the sun is coming from they can get enough light filtered through their retina or whatever, that they know, oh, that's up and this is down and down is safety and up is food right. or, or whatever. I mean, we, you can imagine then, and every little advancement on that, a little bit more granularity, a little 
you could see things really close to you now, or you could see things far away now. It, they're all, you know, those are helpful. They're suggestive, at least. Suggestive, there at may least, be, yeah. There may be some uh, scientific explanation for these. Another part with eyes that's really fascinating is the phenomenon of, of convergent evolution, where the kind of eye that we have, you know, the, called the camera eye, where yeah. we've got a hole in the front, and it puts an image on the back and goes into the rods and cones. and Well, other organisms have evolved those same kind of eyes multiple times. Right. So when we go back to the common ancestors between us and, say, the giant squid, that common ancestor did not have an eye like that No eyes, all. yeah. Right. And so another sort of provocative and suggestive thing is it looks as though that kind of eye is going to develop, and we've seen it multiple times. We've seen it. We have the evidence yes, that this yeah. has happened multiple times, that maybe there's some deeper sort of mechanism, some deeper sort of law of evolution that tends to coalesce on certain kinds of solutions. So for organisms that live where there is light, these kinds of things seem to develop. So I want to say that, and that's from a purely scientific viewpoint. Can I just add about cephalopods and squid? It's also a different kind of nervous system that evolved separately. I I read that book, Other Minds, by the Australian philosopher who's also a big scuba diver, and so he's talking about all this stuff we've learned, this crazy stuff we've learned about cephalopods. Right. And and their nervous system is not all concentrated in their brain. It's their limbs are it's part of their brain. Right? That's wild. And, and you, you have to go all the way back to like little tiny flat worms on the surface of the ocean for the common ancestor between humans and cephalopods. It's way, way, way back there. And so it's it's really interesting to note that this other thing developed, but we can communicate with cephalopods in a primitive kind of a way. They understand some sign language and like they know that that light bulb turns off. If they squirt water at that, they can turn the lights off and they know they like certain um, mm-hmm. keepers more than other keepers. <laughs> you know, it's not, we can't talk to them, but like those developed separately. That's wild. That's wild. That's wild. But it, and it relates to this thing that like, man, God's creativity in this seems to have like a lot of outlets. And it seems like you want to maybe also talk a little bit about where's God in all this? Are we getting a little bit waylaid by the mechanisms? Since I'm a philosopher by training, not a scientist, let me spin it back toward the philosophical in this regard. Because what I think lies at the base of people's concern over irreducible complexity is they want to know where is God in this process. They want to see how is God responsible for bringing about human beings or the other things that are there. And there's a kind of worry that if I come up with a scientific explanation, I've written God out of the picture somehow. And that's what I want to challenge more than anything else. And we'll do so through some suggestive parallels here in some way. So here we are sitting in California. The last uh, week, there's been a few earthquakes going on. Well, we've come to learn how earthquakes work pretty well now. We understand plate tectonics and what's going on down and how land masses form as a result of that. So you can go a little further west out to Hawaii, and I've stood on the big island where you can see the lava pouring out, where there's a fissure in one of these plates, and lava coming up literally forming the big island of Hawaii right now. In in front of your eyes. Yeah. Now, we as Orthodox Christians recite the creeds and say that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Or we can quote the verse in Colossians, creator of all things. Do we believe that God created the Hawaiian islands? 
to mm. which I want to say, yes, I yeah, believe that. of course that. you believe that, yeah. Now, it turns out that I know really well now how God has gone about doing that. Or and maybe it, I don't want to say on. that, but yeah. I want to I say we have a very detailed scientific explanation that doesn't somehow supplant my theological conviction that God is the creator. Yeah, now, like, is, is God more sovereign if the Hawaiian islands did not continue to have lava formation? Like, if they were just there and there's no more volcanic activity that's putting them there? Of course not. Like, who cares? God created a world with volcanic activity. And then that produces islands from time to time, right? Like, that's just... And so one of... They're being produced right now all over the world in vol, along volcanic fault lines. Also, they a lot of them were here a long time ago. I mean, both things are true. Theologically, there should be no difference between them. So it's it's kind of getting to that whole like, is it really better that God goes poof? There are humans. Is that is that actually theologically better? It's and maybe holier. is it whole? Yeah, does it <laughs> make God that. more powerful or something? Like God brought the universe into existence. Like you know, it, I don't know. That's kind of one way that I've found helpful to think about it. And the island yeah. is interesting. Because it's ongoing creation. It's still going. And we could talk about the creation of ourselves as human beings, right? right. As individuals. We've got a pretty... We, I mean, we can mm. read with the psalmist that God knit me together in my mother's womb. I also think my mom and dad had something to do with how that all yeah. came about. And we understand that process really well. Does having a scientific explanation of how human beings are conceived and develop somehow rule out God creating me? No, I don't think so. But right. I'm using a different kind of language. I'm coming at it from a different perspective. And I want to say that neither of those perspectives, the scientific or the theological, tells the whole story by itself. We gain insight when we consider both of them. So if we can recognize that of the Hawaiian Islands, if we can recognize that of me as an individual, could I say the same thing about the species Homo sapiens to say we have a good scientific understanding of where this species came from, while at the same time, I will say theologically that I fully believe that God intentionally created human beings in his image. So that's a theological claim that is not supplanted by our understanding of evolution and our common ancestry. So the people that want to point to irreducible complexity, I want to ask, if we find out some reliable mechanism of a scientific explanation by which bacteria developed flagellum, would that somehow mean God had nothing to do with it? And that's what this boils down to a lot. Yeah, the that's fear, the motivation. Yeah. It's the fear that if I throw my chips into the evolution basket, that I'm somehow committed to life is random and there's no purpose and God yeah. had nothing to do with it. Right. And that's what I'm trying to oppose is that view to say I can fully commit to the orthodox Christian creeds while at the same time recognizing the scientific perspective on the natural history of, of life on the planet that is a legitimate one. So I'm really glad that we have some extra time here. I was hoping we would. When I was looking on the BioLogos site at a bunch of the articles that you had published in preparing for this interview, I thought I found something that caught my eye, which is long lifespans in the book of Genesis. I've kind of long wanted to do an episode about this, but it's not really a big enough topic for a whole episode because it's just kind of a mini episode. But hey, you're here. I have a BioLogos spokesperson and uh, we got time. So the problem is pretty clear. In the book of Genesis, we have all these human beings who are listed as living for 850 years, 963 years is, is Methuselah, the longest. Um, you know, Adam, Noah, 
the, the, just like lifespans that seem very long. And then at the end of the Noah narrative, we have God putting the rainbow in and saying, I'm never going to flood the earth again, but also now you're going to be limited to your three score and 10, your 70 years, which is kind of an average lifespan for a human being earlier on or in more developing countries still. So the, the obvious problem is there's kind of a, I can't imagine someone getting that old. Like that sounds magical. That sounds like mythical language. I know the oldest person in the world is like 111 or something like that, that people, our bodies really don't seem to be made to go that long. You know, you even read about this in some of the popular literature about sort of really wealthy people trying to live longer or freeze themselves. There's all these problems with freezing because there's too much fluid and we don't, you know, it's like, you fix one problem, another one comes up. You cure the cancer, dementia comes. You cure the, de- you know. So there's just, yeah, we keep increasing our care of elderly patients, but there is there does seem to be this built-in expiration date. So that's sort of the obvious problem. Is there any other way of formulating the problem from like an evidentiary standpoint? Just the fact that we have no example of this ever having been the case. So when we dig up fossilized remains of animals, there are various ways of determining the ages of them with the, now I'm not a scientist here, so some of this stuff I might sure. be making up, but um, <laughs> of looking at the the bones, the teeth, the way that these things age over time, the growth plates within bones that you can start to detect. Was this an adolescent that's moved? Oh, right. Yeah, um, exactly. Or you have dentists who can say, oh, they can identify this is an 80-year-old person's tooth. This is a six-year-old's tooth. Right. What is this? This is a 700-year-old tooth. So like, it never turns happened. out yeah. we have never found a 700-year-old tooth right, right. in uh, you know, in a Homo sapien. So this points us back to the same issue we were discussing earlier of plain reading of Scripture. Yeah. When we read through these genealogies where these ages are given, and we say, okay, if Methuselah was 969 years old, or it gives the age at which they had their first son, and the yeah, age and at which hundreds, they died, yeah. Yeah. and so on... And that plain reading of scripture from my English 21st century perspective is, wow, those were old people. Now, when we dig a little bit further, though, we realize that the literature of the time in which Genesis was created, there is extra biblical literature that does very similar things with regard to the ages of people. Hmm. Now, that doesn't prove that, therefore, Genesis is not to be taken that way. But what it does is it makes us ask the question, when I read this, should I take it in the way that I would take it in 21st century English, right. or should I take it in the way that ancient Near Eastern people would take it when when yeah. those kind of numbers were used, so since we, we have examples of that. Yeah, what do we learn from those extra-biblical texts from it that time It turns period? out that numbers get used in really interesting, symbolic ways. Huh. And so I also point out in this article that we also have uses of numbers from the ancient world in the normal way that we use numbers. So here again, we have a, we have a choice to make. We have examples of literature from that time period using numbers the way we would say to say, go pick up two gallons of milk on right. the way home, yeah. or that there were 350 people in that building over there. But we also have examples of numbers being used to convey different kinds of things. So some of the king lists that are that are recorded. The older your king is, the more powerful and per and Interesting. the way I write this literature to say, you want to know how great my king is? He lived at twenty eight thousand years. Yeah, you know that's yeah. one of the examples we oh, have wow. in this regard. Okay. So when we read in our scripture that the age of these people were faced with an interpretive choice to say, 
Is the use of numbers here more like the laundry list or the number of loaves of bread I'm supposed to pick up? Or is it more like upholding one of the heroes to say how important this guy was to us? And if it's the latter, then we would assume that original hearers would have got that too. They would have been aware of this kind of convention of speech of the older someone is, the more prestige you attach to them. I can't make for you this absolute sure. persuasive case that it must be this way. But yeah. what it does is it opens the possibility to suggest maybe there's something more going on. And one of the really fascinating things, so these chapters that give these ages, there's 30 different age numbers that are given. And yeah. they're not 30 different people because, again, sometimes it says, here's how old the guy was when his son was born. Here's how old he yeah. was when he died and and so on. But there are 30 different age numbers and they all end with one of five digits, which is just like if you were to see a supposedly randomly huh. distributed list of numbers and they were all even. They're all even. You'd no go, odds. hmm, yeah. there must be something interesting going on here because the chances yeah. of that happening are just pop- naturally zero. are in the millions, yeah. one, to, yeah. one to million something. Huh. So that makes you say, maybe there's something more going on in this list of numbers than meets the casual eye. And you start digging and you see the use of numbers, particularly the number 60 and the number 7, and finding that these ages that are reported in Scripture are all multiples of 60 and 7, or combinations thereof. Yeah, some combo, yeah. And I, in this article, give some suggestions of ways that you can cash out those numbers in terms of 60s and 7s. Whether that's really what's going on, we're too far removed now to know know. exactly. But I sure think it's suggestive of this was not meant to just be read as the laundry list of numbers. Yeah, and you know, there's there's one thing that people might say, which is like, well, God can create the world, then God can supernaturally let people live longer— But the problem with that response is that in the narrative, after Noah's flood, God's sort of like, you're not going to live a long time anymore. So are you saying that until the flood, while humanity was reeking to high heaven of sin and corruption, God supernaturally made sure that everyone lived to 900 years, and then he simply stopped after the flood? It's like, that's not how the narrative reads, right? It's it reads like God did something different and the flood changed the world in some way. And now, now reading the text in 1200 BC, whatever, reading the story or rather hearing the story, not necessarily reading it, hearing the story around the fire in my ancient Israelite settlement, it's like, you know how we're all 70 years old and then we die. Well, this is the story of that. It doesn't read like a well, if Jesus wants to be raised from the dead, he's God, and so he can re- – it's not a – it's not a. it doesn't read like a miracle. It reads like a this is how things were, and now they're like this. And you're right. If, the, if there's a way that they could have understood this is how they were, they were great. They were giants in the land. These were really wise and loving and you know powerful men, and they lived all this time or whatever. That just makes more sense than going, well, God could do anything because he's God. That just doesn't – you could make that argument. But it seems to not really get at the even the structure of the narrative. And again, it doesn't fit with the other things that we understand about that time period now through natural history. And I will tell you, I fully affirm that God can perform miracles. And then right. things like Jesus raising from the dead, I say, yes, I believe that really happened. And right. that got, that's God doing something different. But when we have a case like this where it seems as though there's precedent for numbers being used in a very different way— sure. 
we ought to pay attention to that. And I don't think it somehow is going to undermine our acceptance of Scripture or belief in God as a miracle worker to say, it looks like these texts came about in cultures where they use numbers differently than we do. And this might be an example, whether I can give some definitive uh, proof or explanation of that or not. It's at least suggestive. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to link to that DNA information BioLogos article as well as the two articles of yours that this conversation were based around if people want to share those. Anything else you'd like to say before we take off? Thanks for your work. Um, I hope that it comes across that the work of BioLogos and of mine in particular is one that we're trying to show that people who take their faith seriously can also take the findings of modern science seriously and that it's possible to uh, reconcile those in such a way that we think we're closer to closer to the truth and that we're understanding more of what God wanted us to know about himself and about the world. Fantastic. Thanks, man. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, I decided to have Jim come back on and actually help me answer this patron slash listener question as he has thought about questions around the Bible and science way more than I have. So here is our collective answer to the question. So, Jim, this is really just the Jim Stump episode here. You got the main interview and you're getting a cameo on the patron question as well. But I read this question, and first I thought, oh, this would be a good question to do for this episode. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, I have some ideas, but let's just get Jim back on because he's going to have a lot more ideas. Um, you're a philosopher and vice president, obviously, of BioLogos. You're thinking about this stuff all the time. It's part of your job. My ideas are just sort of these ideas I happen to have. So I'm going to read the question. And then you start, and we'll just kind of talk through a few things, and I'll make sure I get my thoughts in there and in a relatively organic fashion. This is a question from Justin. How do you understand the Bible as pre-scientific? For example, stories like David and Bathsheba, where the child is born and, quote, struck by God, unquote, rather than the child simply fell ill. What do you want to kind of start off on this? How do you want to start off? Yeah, so I think it's a fair question to ask and uh, one that we need to grapple with at some level. I think how you answer it depends an awful lot on what you take the Bible to be, right? Yeah. And there are a few words that are typically used in the Christian tradition to describe the Bible, things like inspired and authoritative. That's, uh, I think, usually kind of the lowest common denominator for for people. And then you can ramp up from there and go to infallible and inerrant and to use words like that that have become uh, fighting words in, in lots of different circles. And I'd say that putting a label like that onto the text to say this is what it is doesn't even really solve the problem. So yeah. most of the most of the scholars I know who affirm inerrancy say because they work at an institution where they have to sign that every year or perhaps they belong to the Evangelical Theological Society which requires you to sign that you take the Bible to be inerrant. But most of the scholars I know who sign on to that still say okay, but it's inerrant in what it intends to teach or something like that. And so it's still a further question then of what exactly is the Bible trying to teach? Does it, does it try to teach that the earth sits on pillars? Does it try to teach that epilepsy is caused by demons? 
Does it try to teach that I should take my rebellious sons outside the city gates and have them stoned by the elders? Right? So just calling it an errant doesn't solve the problem for us here, right? Well, so yeah, let me let me take that and apply it to the the first child of David and Bathsheba, right? So I kind of think of it like um, well, actually, this one's harder. Let, let's do Ananias and Sapphira, okay? The reason I say that is because the David story is harder because it's maybe written 500 years after the events, whereas Ananias and Sapphira, that's in Acts. That's probably 50, 60 years after the events of the early church, maybe less. Uh, probably something happened with some people named that, and it gets into the lore. It gets into uh, how the early church understands itself. It represents, like— almost definitely a historical event of some kind. So here's how I think about that event. Uh, There were two people in the early church, uh, and perhaps the story went very similar to the way it is told in Acts. Like everybody else was giving all the proceeds from selling their fields and selling their businesses or whatever. They gave some of them uh, and they died. Now, the church, whoever, they're thinking about this, they go, sure seems like that was a consequence of what they did. Because, look, we're all doing this. We think the Holy Spirit has told us to be doing this. They didn't do it. These these are the consequences. Now, if the Bible is inerrant, for instance, and the Bible says that the reason that they were struck down is because they didn't give all the money from their field that they sold, then must we say that what the Bible intends to teach here is that at least Ananias and Sapphira, not necessarily everybody who does that, but in this case— God saw fit to kill them because they trespassed right. the rules. So I don't think we have to say that. So here are here's here's how I like to think about this, and I uh, always like for there to be options and such things. There's a there's a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. I think it's during Advent season sometime. I don't have it in front of me here somewhere, but there's a prayer that says something like, "Thanks be to God who has caused Holy Scripture to be written." Okay, so I like instead of trying to just put a label on it, I like to try to figure out what does it mean that God caused scripture to be written. And here we have a few options, right? You could say God wrote it himself and dropped it down from heaven. And in the Christian tradition, we think that's a little funny. Um, Some of our cousins, not too far removed from our tradition, the Mormons, pretty much think that is what happened, right? There yep. were gold plates that yep. somehow dropped down and were uh, had to be translated. When that comes up, That's, I always mention the Book of Mormon and the Quran. That is that is the doctrine so, of inspiration for those books. Option number two, instead yeah. of God writing it himself, you could say God whispered into the ear. So the dictation method, which is Muslims and the Quran. Okay. This is yeah. Allah whispering into the ear of Muhammad. Muhammad writes it down verbatim. Right. And I think many people, at least on the more conservative side of Christianity, have some view of inspiration that God's just whispering into the ear of Moses or David or Paul, and they're just writing it down. That seems pretty implausible, given the kind of scripture that we actually have, where you have things like four Gospels. We have the Gospel according to Matthew and according to Mark. and accor- We have eyewitness accounts that don't agree on all the details. You know, it starts to get pretty implausible to think that God intentionally whispered different details to each of these people. So it doesn't seem to me that God causing scripture to be written is the result either of God writing it all or of God whispering it into the ear of others and them 
writing it down verbatim. So what are the other options? I think there are two fairly plausible options that uh, might be argued for. One, um, I think Pete Enns is the one who first coined the term the incarnational view of Scripture. So we talk about the Bible as the Word of God, but that title is actually most appropriately applied to Jesus Christ himself, the Word. And Christians take Jesus Christ to be fully God, fully human. So what if we understand Scripture as fully God and fully human. What does that look like? Well, you might come to some view that holds on to inspiration and authority in the sense that God really did appear and reveal himself to these communities, but he appeared and he revealed himself to Moses a long, long, long time ago in a very different culture with very different language, and Moses or whomever, you know, we have this tradition of redaction and so on. Or Let's go to the New Testament. God reveals himself to Paul dramatically on the Damascus Road and changes those things and then gives some sort of revelation that Paul then responds to. Paul writes it down in his language and in his concepts, the way he understands things. God really is revealing himself. Paul really is writing it according to the to what he understands. I think that's a legitimate way then to take some of these passages. You use Ananias and Sapphira. We could use any of the miracle stories or the exorcism stories of people who are responding. They see something miraculous, that something that God is involved in, and they respond to it and write about it according to their, you know, their concepts that they have at their disposal. And it comes comes out in ways that would not be the same way if God had revealed himself and done those same things to us today. Yeah. So, but I think where where I tend to draw a line when we get into infallible or inerrancy territory, what I the way I describe it is at some point in the process, God ensures that certain kinds of errors do not show up. For the inerrantist, that might be any and all errors, at least in terms of what the Bible is trying to state infallibility would say, well, no errors about salvation and the basics of the Christian life or, you know, whichever kind of version of infallibility you end up with. Um, On that ends view, uh, we don't have that kind of layer where God ensures no errors. So we could, so if we're going to go with infallibility or inerrancy, then we do, well, actually inerrancy, then we do have to say, no, God really did strike down Ananias and Sapphira for not giving all their money. If we go with Peter Enns' view, we, we don't have to, we're not required to say that. We can say this is how the church understood that, and there's probably a lesson for us in understanding that that's how they understood it, and we can go from there. But there are people, so I don't myself subscribe to inerrancy in, in that way, but I know people who do that would still say, no, you could still go that way, because that's not what God, that's not what is intended to be taught through Scripture. That's not the message. The message of Scripture is not, look, God struck these people down. There's yeah, a deeper okay. message. So, I guess that makes sense. Or know, Greg Boyd does. Greg Boyd goes this way, right? He'll say, look, you have all these texts in the Old Testament. Very clearly, the authors of them intend to say God slaughtered all these people and wanted the Israelites to kill all these women and children. But God wants it in there, not for that reason, but for a sort of a negative example reason. Right. So it's in there for a reason, but you can't just read it and say whatever it says is true. 
Right. So this makes interpreting the Bible messier. Right. You can't just point to chapter and verse and say, this is what the Bible says, therefore this is the message of the Bible. Okay, so I want to move Let me give one on. other yeah, way, okay. though, too. All right. There's one other option, and uh, this comes from C.S. Lewis, who is like patron saint of American Christians, right? Yeah. And he has, a, he has a little book on the Psalms, so he doesn't necessarily apply this to New Testament, but I think it could be just as much, where he wants to say, Scripture proceeds not by con- some conversion of God's word into a literature, but the other way, by taking up a literature to be the vehicle of God's word. That is, scripture is written by people, and they wrote it very much the way everybody else in their time was writing things. But here's a tradition that we're part of, and we believe that God is involved in, right? Right. But you don't have to say God's whispering in the ear to make sure they got it all right. But they wrote stuff. And then within this tradition, that has been taken up into the service of God, right? So what he says is you still get things like the human qualities of the raw materials still show through. Naivete, error, contradiction, even in the cursing psalms, wickedness. These aren't taken out of this literature, But the total result is not the word of God in the sense that every passage in itself gives some sort of precise science or history, but rather it carries the word of God. This literature that was generated in human communities has been taken up in the service of carrying the word of God. Now, I'm kind of partial to that, but again, it makes interpreting scripture a lot messier. I was going to say, and then comes in discernment, yeah. Um, so that's good. I, I want to ask you about two more things before we're done. Um, one is just how do you think of the science part of this question, which is also interesting. And then before we're done, I want to talk a little bit about kind of prosperity gospel and these these sort of um, cosmic rules of punishment and reward that I think human beings are really drawn to being able to to imagine exist. Um, and I think that there's some pushback within the text actually sure. against that so first yeah, the just, science side yeah, science yeah i mean that because science that's, side is pretty easy to okay. to fit into these kind of ways that i was just talking about where people at this time and place in this culture are responding to what they have seen and heard and perhaps been revealed to by god but they're responding to it in their own words in their own concepts according to what they know and i don't think so i got this from john walton but uh, I don't think there's any place in Scripture where you can find that God has revealed some scientific truth that the people of that time and place had not already discovered. Right. Yeah. That like Jesus seems to be the purpose of Scripture. Yeah. Jesus could have saved a lot of lives by letting us know about penicillin, but chose not to. Right. <laughs> and yeah, even I actually Jesus don't think himself, Jesus knew about it. Yeah. Even Jesus himself, there's there's a passage where Jesus talks about the eye is the lamp of the body. This is a direct reference to a current scientific theory about how vision works, which is that your eyes actually send out some ray mm. in order to, to see the stuff. That's what so they thought have, then, yeah. Here we have Jesus endorsing a patently false scientific theory. Right. Okay. So, so there's, just, there's just no sense in which the Bible is trying to do science the way we would say it today. They're, using, they're just using language the way that people used language in their day. Um, yeah, and there's all kinds of stuff in Paul where uh, scholarship has dug up sort of these pseudoscientific theories that were around and that he seems to be sort of endorsing. Um, yep. Okay, 
So then the, this last one, because um, I think that this is where we can apply this I th- maybe most fruitfully, at least in terms of my recent thinking. Human beings seem to really want systems that they can ascribe to, that they can interpret uh, the chaos of the world as actually, if you know the system, it's not chaotic. So for instance, people think that the prosperity gospel is about money, and it is sometimes about money. You know, if you tithe this much, God will tenfold increase you monetarily, but it's also about healing. It's about faith. It's like those, well, they didn't get healed and we all prayed. Well, they must not have had enough faith because the rule is if you have enough faith, you will be healed. So if you weren't healed, you must not have had enough faith. It's basically a, it's a comforting way to deal with chaos and, and un, right. injustice in the world. And I wonder if we, if we are admitting human elements in the text, might we admit that that's going on in the story of David and Bathsheba's first son, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Is there a sense in which the writers of that and then the oral tradition as it gets passed down and, and, uh, and sort of forms into the literature that becomes the sacred text, you know, if that's at play? I mean, is that, is that to psychoanalyze them too much or do you think that that's something worth considering? So worth considering and uh, realize that the person right now considering it out loud is a philosopher, not necessarily a uh, expert of of the Bible and the Old Testament in particular. Sure. But I know that uh, the experts do talk of many of the so-called historical texts of the Old Testament as having been reworked with those specific things in mind. You want to see how great we are? Here's what happened. And so there's a very real sense at which God is on our side, so much so that I'm going to rewrite history a little bit to show you how great we have been in the past. And not not that it's an intention to deceive. It's just this is the kind of literature that's going on. So there's very much an element when you go from Kings into Chronicles Say, I was just going to say, yeah, the, yep. hearing the same stories again that have been reworked, reworked for specific purposes to talk about how great it is that God is for us and how great we are, therefore, and everything that has happened. And I mean, my memory's fuzzy, but I think even that Chronicles is specifically rewritten with the exile in mind in some particular way or something like this is why the exile happened or. Or, or it might be right. after Ezra, this is why we are now blessed again. It was something like, it's yeah. either pre yeah, or, sure. right, it's something about the exile. And you can, if you read it with that lens, you can see how the same events are interpreted differently and told differently. Right. I also think it's worth saying that Jesus himself seems to push back against these kind of tidy systems. The rain falls, which agricultural society, rain falling is good. So blessings come on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus does not think the world is fair. Jesus knows it's not fair. And his teaching and his way of being is in spite of that unfairness, right? And you get, I think you can get that from script, from other places in scripture too. So if you read Proverbs, it sure seems like if you do the right thing, yep. things are going to go well for you. If you read Job, you don't get the same view. Or Ecclesiastes. If right. you read Ecclesiastes, yeah. you don't get the same view. So I am a fan of seeing scripture as lots of different people bearing witness to their 
experience of God. And it doesn't yeah. all come across the same way. Now, what we yeah. try to do, though, with theology, which is a distinct dif- discipline from biblical interpretation, what we try to do with theology is make sense of it. So you get a prosperity gospel. That's not just reading the text. It's making a bigger explanatory system yep. that I pick and choose data points yep. from the text and make a coherent story out of it. Theology is our doing. It's our story that we try to tell. And in many ways, the writers of the Bible were doing their theology, right? That we think was informed, in many cases, directly by God. But they're trying to make sense of what has happened to them. You know, this is a, this yeah. is a lot of Paul theologizing, trying to make sense of the fact that this Messiah that I had thought I was persecuting all of his followers because he was crucified, like all those other would-be messiahs, turns out to still be alive. What do I do with that? Well, I'm going to go back and read Isaiah again and reread it and theologize about it in ways that yeah. probably you know the original hearers of Isaiah didn't understand. Right, and we do that now too. We now read these texts in in light of our experience and try to make sense of it. And it's best if we're part of a community that does that rather than setting off on our own to do it so that we're informed by traditions and all of that. Um, But we can't hide the fact that we all do that. I just I don't want to leave without hitting epilepsy demon possession because that one comes up all the time. So let's say you're convinced, as I am, that many of the stories in the Gospels to the extent that they reflect events that happened, uh, a lot of the times that the text calls it demon possession looks a lot like seizures and epilepsy. And I know that they didn't know what those things were back then. So just just kind of walk me through how you specifically think about passages like that, where there's now we kind of have a medical condition. We would describe it differently than they described it then. Just, just walk us through it. So one easy answer to that is to say, why can't it be both? Yeah, now, I don't really I'm like that gonna, answer. <laughs> I'm not going to take that and say, therefore, all cases yeah. of epilepsy are caused by demons, right? I'm not going the Frank Peretti, this present darkness route. Um, yeah, thank you. But there's something to be said, again, for a, a community, a religious tradition that is telling a story that is trying to understand what God's role in all of this has been to talk about it from uh, what, I'm, or at least we could talk about it now from two very different perspectives. I might give mm-hmm. a scientific explanation for something, and I might give a theological explanation for something. So same thing with the rain you were just talking about. Does God send the rain on the just and the unjust? Or does it just rain because that's what meteorology is? It's, I mean, in a Can sense, it's it both. Be both? Yeah. Can we tell a story at least where both yeah. are involved? So I want to yeah. say that that's not ridiculous to say. So if you believe in demons, it's not ridiculous to say that there are demonic effects that we might have different kinds of explanations for given our given our uh, science and what we know. I think it depends on how specific you want to get with your demonology. There are episodes where the demons have names and they speak with the vocal cord of the possessed person. That is not really concurrent with epilepsy. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so those might be a different kind of uh, experience. So Um, all I was saying was I don't think it's ridiculous to hold on to some (laughs) such view where you can legitimately talk about epilepsy and legitimately talk about demons or some power. Now, I think it's also completely possible, and 
defensible for Christians who take scripture seriously to say, yeah, they had a word for that and they had an understanding for that. We have a different one and we treat it differently. Yeah. And then again, we're thrown right into the midst of the messiness of trying to interpret scripture from people who said certain things that we think are probably different understandings of the world and we would say them differently. So what's the message of scripture in all of this? Is that... Is it that if you say these words that people who are having seizures will snap out of them instantly? I don't think that's the message of Scripture, hmm. right? Yeah. So, yeah. but well, then it gets yeah. messier to try to understand all that. But. And it gets a further layer of messiness as you, if you read about like medieval Christianity and basically how demonology was used with people that had mental illness and uh, it gets real dark. Um and then wondering, ah, are we going to repeat that here? And are we going to, you know, there, there's there's the other layer of like just the the sort of wariness towards psychology in historically that's For within sure. Christianity sure. and the real consequences of that. Well, anyway, that was a long Q and A session, but interesting, Jim. Thank you so much for being a part this entire episode. Essentially, all right, appreciate it, and uh, I hope that people check out the BioLogos podcast and enjoy your work. Thank you. Thanks for your work. Big thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing today's episode. And folks, he is available for more podcast editing. His email address is in the show notes. Also in the show notes, the DNA article that Jim referenced and the original 10 Misconceptions About Evolution article as well as a link to the podcast Language of God that Jim hosts and Jim's author page at biologos.org so you can see other stuff that he's written. Join the Patreon for bonus episodes, for Facebook activity and uh, Facebook group membership. You have permission dot, you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron or patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Those links are also in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Send me an email if you have any questions or you just want to say some things about the show and what it's done uh, in your life and in your thoughts. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. And thank you. We'll see you guys next week.